Listener Production. Are you tired of not getting what you want in life? I used to feel the same until I learnt the techniques of manifestation. Let me take you through step by step how I manifest so you can start living the life you had always dreamt for yourself. All the info on my Manifest Your Greatness course is in this episode's show notes or you can go to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Lael Stone is a speaker, educator and author who is passionate about supporting parents to understand their children and helping adults process their own trauma. Lael embodies for me an emerging story we've barely begun to tell ourselves about new understandings of trauma and healing which we can no longer ignore. Children cannot be what they can't see, Lael says. In the conversation of this hour, we discuss being role models for our kids, not allowing a parent's insecurities from their own childhood to become their kids' reality, and the teen years, including puberty, pornography, drugs, alcohol and sex. We really want to come back again to checking ourselves. Do I make it safe enough for my kids to bring me their big stuff? You know, do I shut it down? Do I feel uncomfortable with it? Do I yell? But when we're looking at, okay, how do we keep our kids safe? How do we help them navigate this tricky stuff? Well, then we've got to really tune into making sure that we're making it safe enough for them to bring those big stories to us. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Lael Stone is the author of Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children. In its essence, this conversation is about how to take a hands-on, fully present approach to parenting that will help any child thrive. My hope is that this discussion inspires you to rethink your own behavioural compulsions, readdress your unhealed pain and be the best parent friend and person in a world that needs you. Lael Stone, I would like to start at the beginning because we've got so much to chat about, but how did you get into being a child educator that, as you say, speaks to the heart of the child? Mm. I always think about when, you know, what life brings us and how we begin on our journey. So actually, probably the very first job I really did when I finished high school, I went and travelled for a few years and then came back and actually started a children's entertainment company. That was my very first job. <laughs> I used to dress up as a fairy and entertain kids. This is when the Wiggles were coming out, right? This is how old I am. Um, that I used to, we used to put on big shows and pantomimes and I spent probably a good seven or eight years entertaining kids. So playing with them, really getting into that whole fun, beautiful aspect. So I did that for quite a while. And then I had my own children and I was like, I don't want to entertain anyone else's kids when I've got my own. Uh, And from there, I ended up um, moving into birth because I had a really powerful second birth experience. So my first birth, like a lot of women, was um, traumatic and it wasn't a really positive experience. But by the time I had my second, I'd learned a lot more, had a really amazing experience. And it just opened something up in me where I was like, wow, I want other women to know how powerful and brilliant birth can actually be. Mm. 
So I, um, I became a childbirth educator. I was a doula. I just started working with families around having babies. And it was, I, I absolutely loved it. It was amazing just being there when babies were born, but also just helping families to feel really empowered around this kind of first step in that parenting journey, so to speak. Uh, and then I found myself working a lot with couples that had had trauma. So either with parents that had had stillbirths or they'd mm. been death or there were complications. And um, I found myself just quite drawn to working with, with couples that had gone through adversity. And that then moved me on to starting to work a lot more with just trauma and parenting. Um, when I had my third baby, I had a really big traumatic experience with her. And it was a bit of one of those kind of life or death situations. And what happened? Um, she was an undiagnosed breach, <laughs> that falling breach that, you know, um, kind of came out, got stuck. And, you know, we had a cesarean. It was, you know, amazing doctor's hospital that um, that we got through. But she was being resuscitated for a really, really long time mm. and wasn't expected to live. So it was one of those situations that I think um, I look back now and think actually it was one of the most profound things that ever happened to me. But at the time it was, you know, scary and we didn't know if our baby was going to live. And when we managed to come through that experience, I remember thinking, you know, I've been through a trauma and so is she. And how am I going to help my baby heal from this trauma? Mm. How am I going to help myself heal from this trauma? And so then my interest, or I think, uh, around trauma just deepened even more. So I just wanted to learn as much as I could. I started doing really intense therapy around my own trauma and how that had impacted me. And then that took me on to learning a lot about aware parenting, which is style of parenting, which is really about helping children, you know, heal from stress and trauma. And and then that moved on to becoming an aware parenting instructor and starting to work with families and just through, I guess, watching my own family and the growth of my kids and my own self-development, I just started learning more and, and was hungry for information. And then that kind of just translated out into the world. So I did that for quite a long time and worked with thousands and thousands of parents and families. And then as my kids grew, and particularly as my son became a teenager, I just started to think, oh my goodness, have I taught him enough about respectful relationships and sex and intimacy? And I had just this massive freak out when he was about 13 thinking, is he going to be a good human? You know, is he going to be a deeply respectful young man? And so then I just threw myself into wanting to know as much as I could about adolescence and sex education and just all that kind of stuff. And I mean, funnily enough, I ended up going to his secondary school, um, I had a chat with um, one of his coordinators who knew that I was a birth educator and he said, could you come in and do a session for the kids on childbirth? And I was like, yeah, yeah, no worries. So I went in and took in my pelvis and my plastic baby and the whole thing yeah. and it was amazing. And um, and then as, leave, as I was leaving the class, I actually said to him, you know, do you talk to the kids about porn and, and consent and all those things? And he was like, yeah, no, not really. And I was like, well, you need to be like, this is really big. So this is, this is probably probably um, 10 years ago now. So it wasn't really so much something that was talked about a lot in secondary schools. And so I said to him, can I come back and talk to the kids? Would you be happy for me to do that? And he's like, yeah, knock yourself out. Because I think many teachers were like, we don't even know how to touch this or want to talk about it. So I went back to his secondary school. My poor kids (laughs) had me doing the weirdest jobs and they're like, mum, you cannot teach my friends. You cannot (laughs) teach my class. But I went back in and um, did this amazing class with these kids. They were so 
so hungry for knowledge and wanting to ask a whole lot of questions. And I just thought, wow, this this needs to be spoken about more. Mm. And then and then just other schools were hearing about me. And then I started doing classes for about five years, teaching what I called pleasure-based sex education. So it wasn't just about don't get pregnant, you know, be mm. mindful of you know, STIs, all that kind of stuff. It was about how do we know what feels good in our bodies? How do we tune into what our yeses and nos are? How do we respectfully say no? How do we say yes? How do we navigate all that really tricky stuff of adolescence and sex and figuring out who we are and what pleasure is? I mean, no one ever spoke to me about pleasure Mm. when I was a teenager. So I did that for many years, which was amazing. And I, I felt so privileged to be able to work with a whole lot of teenagers just to have those conversations that I felt a lot of adults weren't having with them. Uh, And so from there, I did that for a few years and then the opportunity came along to actually build my own school, um, which came through a client of mine. And so I spent then nearly three years creating and building my school, Woodline Primary, which is just um, out of Geelong down here in Victoria. And, uh, and, and so that's been open about three years and, and yeah, now my kids are kind of adults and, you know, bigger in the world. And I figure I've kind of touched all parts from birth up until adulthood. So maybe I'll work with, I don't know, dying and death next. I don't know. (laughs) There's just so much to unpack there. I'd like to go back to how you got over the trauma of that birth that you had with your third child. What did you do to heal? Well, it was really interesting. I think I knew enough about trauma from when it happened that, um, you know, trauma turns up in our lives in many interesting ways. Mm. And so when I finally brought my baby home, I I remember just thinking, right, we've just got to get on with life. I had two other kids at the time and you just kind of go into survival and automatic, just, you know, we'll, we'll just process and keep going along. But it was probably really about a year and a half later when I started to see signs of trauma really turning up in my life. So I started to feel really anxious. I was um, normal things that I would do. I used to go and stand in front of hundreds of people and talk and I just couldn't do it anymore. I found it hard even walking into the schoolyard to drop my kids off at school. And so I began to see, I guess, the cracks in myself of like all of a sudden this anxiety was turning up around life. I was really worried that something dangerous was going to happen. And so I, I I knew that I just had to start really processing what had happened at my daughter's birth and had to start actually feeling it. So what I'd done up until then is rationalise it, understand the story, go over it, look at my notes, talk to people about it. But my body was still holding the story. And so I actually started going and doing some body work with some pretty amazing practitioners to almost take me back into what my body was holding, the story, Mm. the trauma, the fear, that whole fight or flight response that didn't have an opportunity to be released. And I think one of the things that was so profound about it is... I knew a lot of information. So I'd often rationalise to myself, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. It's okay. And then I would not be fine. And I realised that what I was actually doing was just avoiding feeling what was sitting there, which is what we all often learn to do as adults. We learn to avoid actually the feelings. We can compartmentalise in our mind around what happened. We can understand it, but we actually often avoid feeling the grief, the fear, the hurt, the pain, all those kind of things. So I had to be brave and be vulnerable and actually start to feel. And I needed to do that with someone else to hold the space for me. And I actually, probably one of the most profound things I did is I gave myself permission to take as much time as I needed to do it. Mm. You know, I'm a bit of an action person. If I've got an idea, I want to do something, I will jump in, I will do it. You know, I can make stuff happen. 
And what was so frustrating for me is I couldn't make myself heal. I couldn't, you know, be over this. I kept looking for all these different modalities to do. If I do this, then I'll be fine. And then I was like, why didn't it work? And I realized that healing was so much about a gentle, slow, compassionate journey that was going to take the time it was going to take. And so I had to go as fast as the slowest part of myself, Hmm. which really meant just some days being really gentle and compassionate with myself. And other days I had more in the tank and I began to just see that there was a really gentle, beautiful unfolding of that trauma and that process. And at the same time, you know, I was still parenting and Mm. helping my baby move through her traumas as well. And that was really profound because I looked at her and thought, she's still got a whole story. You know, she spent the first four days of her life, you know, in in a um, induced coma. You know, she was surrounded by machines. She was... um, um, I didn't get to hold her till she was like 10 days old, you know, and I know enough to know that those mm. imprints when we begin life can have a massive impact on our bodies. So as much as I started doing my healing journey of feeling, uh, every day I would sit with her and, you know, once I'd made sure she'd had her needs met, you know, she'd been fed or I would hold her in my arms and I would say to her, you know, if there's anything you want to tell me, I'm listening. Mm. And she would start crying and she would wow. look me in the eye and she would cry. Sometimes she'd arch her back. And I would just sit there and listen and say, I hear you and I'm listening. And sometimes she'd cry for five minutes. Sometimes she'd cry for half an hour. And always afterwards, she would have the most incredible sense of relaxation come over her Mm. body. She would look deeply into my eyes. It was like we just, we were both healing together. Mm. And it completely, I I was just, it, it blew me away because I thought, as humans, we actually do know how to heal. We often just get in the way of doing it. Oh, the body's innate knowing is to heal. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But we often stop it, block it, mm. we shush, we tell people don't worry, it's okay, don't cry, all those things. Yet what I began to see with my daughter and myself is that when we allow ourselves, when we feel safe enough to feel, then those feelings can come out. Mm. And I guess what my daughter taught me is all she needed was a safe space and my presence and then she would bring the feelings and then let them go. Mm. And it was incredible because then it actually made me look at my two older kids and realise, gosh, I've been actually shutting down their feelings a lot as well. And, you know, well-meaning stuff that we do as parents, if don't worry, I'll make it better or it's okay or, you know, not wanting our kids to ever be upset because it often feels feels very confronting for us when our kids are upset. But when I began to see this change in my youngest, I looked at my older two and thought, I need to actually listen more. I need to not shut down these feelings. I need to not try and distract them when they're upset, but I need to learn to sit with them in their hurt, in their worry, in their fear and hold that same space. And when I started to do that, it was extraordinary what I began to see in my kids and my family. I began to see all their own stresses lessen. I began to see that they were so much more cooperative in who they were, you know, when I needed them to do something. I began to see that they weren't carrying around this big backpack of feelings that Mm. life often has for us. So that simple act, of just being really attuned and present to my kids and holding space for when those feelings were there became the most extraordinary um, foundation for me in understanding trauma, not only for my own healing, but for all the families I started working with. That's so beautiful. I mean, I'm all about having our feelings come out and I feel I feel like you know if I've got something that's inside of me I'm all about feeling it and going through the depth of 
sometimes some of the rawest emotions to be able to move through them. But it's an interesting one when we talk about not just ourselves but our kids because it is obviously human nature if we see our child is upset to want them to not feel upset and the way we do that is to like you said change the subject say it's going to be okay Mm. not allow them to actually feel what they're feeling and as we all know the research is now showing that that is what we need our kids to do but I wonder for someone who's in a situation where they haven't been doing that. What is the language around how we should be talking to our child? Mm, I think parents often will come to me and say, oh God, I've, you know, I feel like I've messed it up. I've been shutting my kids down. I've been distracting them or, you know, I feel really uncomfortable with feelings. So, you know, have I, have I damaged them? And I'll often say it is never too late to heal ever, ever. Mm. And every day we have the opportunity to tune into someone and to get calm within ourselves and just listen and be present. And so I think that when um, a lot of kids develop uh, a story that says, hey, it's not okay to feel, and, and that's just because of the family of origin they've grown up in. I mean, that applies to most of us as adults. We grew up in a behaviorism paradigm that when we were young and when we got angry, we got upset. We either got sent to our room, we got shut down, we might've got smacked. Many of us as adults learned pretty early on, don't feel. So what do we what do we learn to do? We learn to repress our feelings or we hold on to them and then it comes out in aggression. And so we see the same thing with our kids. Our kids learn to repress their feelings. So that's why often they want the iPad when they're upset or they want to eat more food or they can't sit still. They have to move their bodies all the time. You know, there's these beautiful classic control things that kids do to not feel. And so what we, I think, need to do as adults is firstly just observe and watch. When my child is upset, do they kind of, you know, disassociate and suck all those feelings in? Are they looking to distract themselves so they don't have to feel? And what we need or or the antidote to repression is connection. Mm. So when somebody is upset, it's about coming in gently and and creating that safe space to say, hey, I'm here and I'm listening. Now, with our kids, if they've learned really early on to not feel, sometimes that takes a lot of practice and sometimes that takes lots of invitations to say, hey, you can let it out and I'm listening and I'm not going to judge you. Uh, sometimes the best way through is through play and laughter to mm. connect and create that beautiful connection between the parent and the child. So the child kind of, their whole nervous system relaxes a little bit because laughter is such a beautiful stress release as well. And then the feelings can start to come up. You know, when I worked with teenagers, one of the biggest take-homes I learned from them is... um is about listening. So I would say to all of them, every teen I worked with, I'd ask the question, if you could change one thing about your parent or if there's one thing you wish your parents would know, what would, what would you want that to be? And 85% of them would say, I just want them to listen. But there were three things they wanted. They firstly wanted them to listen without judgment so that when those teens were coming to you saying, you know, such and such is vaping in the toilet or this person did this, that you know, as a parent, we didn't get into the drama around that. And we didn't get into the, you know, well, they're, you know, they're, they're not a very good person, are they? Well, they're not a great student. You know, they don't want the judgment, right? So the first thing they wanted is, is to not be judged by what they were sharing. The second, 
second thing, and this is so pivotal, is to not be fixed, is to be able to say, hey, this is what's going on for me and this feels really hard. And for a parent to be able to sit there and go, yeah, that sounds hard. Tell me more. Because what we do as parents, as we just touched on, is we move so quickly to fixing because it's so uncomfortable for us to see our child struggle. I mean, and who hasn't as an adult um, gone through those experiences when we were teens where we didn't get picked in the basketball team or a friend said they didn't want to be friends with us anymore or a, you know, boyfriend kissed our best friend or, you know, we've all have experiences like that. We know how painful it was. Mm. And then when you've got a teen in front of you going through the same thing, well, every single part of you wants to stop that. You don't want them to feel that pain and that angst. Yet, those challenges are so vital for children's growth and development. Mm. And the difference between that being something that can create resilience and not is whether a teenager has somebody to lean into who will listen to them, where they get to offload their feelings in a healthy way, and then they are able to open up the possibility of seeing what that was about, that growth and learning and move on. So when teens go through those you know, ch- challenging experiences, which they're going to, what they deeply need is a parent who can be there to be what I call that anchor point Mm. that just says, hey, I'm here and this is not too big for me and I can sit with you in the uncomfortable. And that's really hard as a parent because every part of us wants to fix. Mm. And so I often say to parents, you know, this will happen when your teen's going through something hard. There's going to be a part of you that's like, this is not okay. And you're going to want to jump in and fix it. And the kindest thing you can do in that moment is go and call a friend or talk to your partner and say, God, this is so painful watching my kid go through this, but, and it's bringing up all my own feelings around it. And I just need to talk it out first. So then I can come back and be that calm anchor for my child. So, you know, so much of, I think, raising kids is being, is tuning into, you know, our own stories and how we are reacting when something goes on. So coming back to that listening piece, You know, those beautiful teens kept saying to me, we want to be heard without being judged. We want to be heard without being fixed. And we want to be heard without the parent jumping into the drama with them. And again, that kind of ties back into our own stories. Mm. You know, if you grew up and had experiences where people didn't play with you or perhaps you were bullied or you didn't, you know, you didn't feel like you were very clever at maths or whatever is our story, we've all got it. And then our child starts playing out the same stuff. It is going to hit that sweet spot within us and we are going to get into our own wounds and story around it and that is not what our kids need. They don't need to be carrying our baggage. You know, they are constantly saying to us, that's yours. I don't want to carry that forward. And so when we learn to listen well and we can actually sit back and see our beautiful kids and go, my job here is not to, is not to fix, it is just to be present. Mm. It is to listen. It is to offer empathy and compassion. And then when a child feels heard, when they've had the opportunity to cry or rage or vent or talk about how unfair it is, then it opens up possibility for them to learn or grow or create the change that they need to create. So if you are listening to your child and they've had a situation that's made them quite upset and you do have advice for them, that's not within your own story. You just have advice that you think you wish you'd been told Mm. when you were young. Mm. Is it okay to give it to them? So I always, my kind of... Um, benchmark is this, is that when a child comes to you with something big, even if it's a three-year-old or a 13-year-old, and they start going, this isn't fair or that's not okay, you just be like, yep, I hear you. Tell me more. 
gosh, that sounds hard. Like you just offer empathy. Yes. And then when they've finished their big kind of offload, then you might offer something like, do you want a suggestion, honey, or did you want me to just Mm. listen? Now, if they say, I want you to just listen, you cannot then go, okay, that's fine. But this is what I think you should do. Yes. You have to just be like, okay. Because what you're doing in that moment is you're setting up this beautiful relationship of trust with them that says, hey, you can bring me stuff and I can hold it for you. Mm. And that is the challenging part because we can see, you know, we've been there before. We can see maybe the train wreck that's going to happen in front of them. (laughs) And of course we want to protect them. But children have to experience tricky things. They Mm. have to go through adversity. It's how we grow and how we learn. And again, the difference between a child thriving and not is them having a really safe adult who they can go to to say, this feels big for me and this feels hard. And our job as the adult is to not jump into fix, is to just be that holding container and offer, do you want some advice? And you know what I've found with my kids over the years, like my son, he's 23 now, and then I've got a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old. In practicing that a lot, and it's hard. Oh my God, I can't tell you how hard it is. So many times I've had to bite my tongue. Um, But the more I've kept saying, do you want a suggestion or do you want me to just listen? And now I don't have to say it anymore because they will actually come to me and say, I need some advice. Or what do you think about this? And, and I think as humans, you know, we don't love being offered advice when we're not asking for it. When mm. we want advice, we ask, right? And kids are kind of the same. It's so interesting because, like, I think of myself and when I love talking things out, you mm. know how different yeah. people like different yeah. things. And, I mean, it's, you know, not ironic that I do a podcast where I'm talking all day. Mm-hmm. But if I have an issue, I go to the people I trust and I tell them about it and I always want advice. I trust you. You're in mm-hmm. my sacred couple of people and I'm asking you this in the times where I sometimes I'll just talk about it and they haven't said anything and I'm like, I feel so much better <laughs> because I just voiced what was on my mind. As soon as I voiced it, I was like, oh, that's not as bad as what I thought it was or you know, now please give me your advice because I, you know, think that you're really intelligent and I trust what you're saying. So I think what you've just said is so pertinent, but I'd love to know what your advice is to parents who do know that there's a child that's friends with their child that they don't think is a good influence Mm. or not even just an influence, more so they could be quite manipulative, vindictive, that kind of stuff. Mm. I think um, it's a great question. And I, I often work with that in the way of really inviting our kids to tune into how does that friendship feel for them? Yeah. So it might be like, how is it hanging out with Max? And do you feel like it's fair with Max? Like, do you feel like he listens to what you've got to say? And you can be posing questions to them around how it feels in their body. You know, does that person boss you around? Or do you feel like they, um, you know, make you do things that sometimes, you know, you don't feel like you want to do? I mean, these are all beautiful conversations that we can have with our kids at any age to get them to to teach them about tuning into their instincts and tuning into their bodies about what feels good for them, what feels a good yes and what feels a good no. And... Over the years, what I have absolutely learned to trust is that my kids will bring into their world the people they need to sometimes teach them the contrast of how Mm. they don't want, what they don't want in the world, and also to teach them some other beautiful lessons about themselves. And again, it's really challenging as a parent when you can see a dynamic playing out and every part of you is like, that's not good for them. 
can we trust that actually our child has called that in for some reason? Can we trust that there is some wisdom in that for our child to learn? Now, that may be that your child having that relationship is learning to actually find their voice and say, no, I don't like that. Or it may be that they need to experience the contrast with that child and getting into trouble to actually go, that doesn't feel good for me. And so I think as parents, we so often look through the lens where we're like, I just want it to all be okay all the time. And so that's where we often look at their friendships or I don't like that teacher. You know, they don't feel like, you know, they really get my child. I want to move them to a different class. There's always parents like that. Yeah. And and look, it's fair enough, right? Because we want our kids to be safe and we want them to feel good. But I think if we can step back a bit and look at it through the lens of my child has their own beautiful journey in Mm. front of them, right? And who am I to dictate how that should look? Now, there's no doubt we have influence over our kids and and we teach them about our values and we teach them and hopefully we model to them what being a really amazing human in the world looks like. You know, they're always watching. But I think there's got to be a part where we have to trust what our kids call in around who they're with and what's going on. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we don't sometimes step in and say, you know, I, I feel it's too dangerous to, for you being with these people. How can we find a different solution? But I think it's about really being curious as the adult to look at what perhaps is my child learning from this dynamic as well. Mm. And sometimes that's the contrast, right? Sometimes it's the messy so that they go, actually, that doesn't feel good for me and that's not the way I want to be treated. Mm. So it's, 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 and we have the same thing in our lives as adults. I always think that, why is this person coming to my life? And then you realise it is to teach you something. I mean, we could say, as a lot of people on this podcast will have listened, why does disease come into our life? It teaches us. They're all, but are we willing to learn the lesson before it's shown to us again? I love what you said around obviously being the mirror because as we know up until the child's seven, they're they're in their subconscious mind and it's not so much about what we say to them, it's what we're mirroring to them. And it's really interesting because I'm not scared of any animals or bugs or anything like that. You know how children or most kids, they're scared of spiders or something like that. I don't know if they get it from TV or their friends or anything or any kind of rodents. (laughs) This sounds funny, but I always say to my kids, like they're like, oh, there's a spider in my room or something. And I say, do you think that God would put an animal on the earth if it wasn't here for a purpose, there are no bad animals or bugs or anything. They're all God's creatures. And, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I am trying to show them why would you be scared of that? There is nothing to be scared of. And it's interesting to see how their fear around those insects has lessened because they're seeing me as the person that is not afraid of them. And I'll, I'll take it and I'll make sure I do not kill that animal or the bug or whatever. And I put it outside. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, such a beautiful example you're giving there. Our children are constantly watching yeah. and they are constantly gauging how safe is this world by us. And one of the things I love to work with adults about is what I call our imprints, the, the things that we were conditioned with and how that turns up in our life. So if you grew up in a family, and, and I often use the example of trust, if you grew up in a family where trust was something that uh, the message you got from your parents was don't trust anyone, you know, be people are sketchy, be careful all the time. It's not safe to go out at night. Always make sure you've got something, you know, to protect yourself with. If we grew up in an environment where perhaps there was infidelity, you know, there wasn't honesty, those kind of things, a lot of people grow up with an imprint that, you know, I cannot trust life and I cannot trust other people. And that 
story, that imprint within them is inherent and often they don't even know that they carry it. Mm. They just go through life and interact in certain ways, having the same circumstances come up again and again and again because of these imprints they received. And often what we do with our imprints is we keep looking for evidence that it's true. So we always look for, see, that person did wrong by me. I can't trust them, you know, or yeah, everybody cheats. See, that person did it as well. So coming back to your beautiful um, story about creatures and animals, what we model to our kids has such an impact on how they are going to view the world. And that can be a massive pressure as a parent because you're like, oh my God, like they're watching everything. And they are, right? What is our relationship to our bodies? How tender are we to our partners? How do we speak to them? How do we talk about ourselves? And, you know, how do we model making mistakes and being kind to ourselves? You know, what do, what is our relationship to anger and tears and frustrations? They're watching that as well. So everything they are watching... And that can feel like a huge pressure, but, and it's not that we have to be perfect because there is no perfect within it. But I think it's always when we have kids, our children are going to come to us and mirror back to us where some of those imprints and stories don't serve us because our kids are like, I don't want to carry that story forward. And so then they bring those pieces to us and it's our job as the adult or as the conscious adult to inquire and go, well, what is my belief system around Mm. that? And what did I learn about that? And what happened in my family of origin around that? And then as we begin to kind of look, I always say we've got to kind of look back to the past to know how we can move forward. Mm. When we begin to understand where our stories came from, what was modelled to us, and we don't judge it, we don't see it as wrong, we just like, that's the story. I was given, then we are able to start making changes and think about, well, what imprints do I want my kids to have? Mm. And how can I actually change that story for me to be one that feels good? And I think as a parent, we are offered this opportunity every day with our kids, especially when we get triggered by them or perhaps when their big stuff comes up, you know, we can have the opportunity to really inquire into, all right, well, what is this about for me here? Mm. And that usually is so heavy as well when we do that. I'd love to know, obviously, our kids are at school and be it teenagers or little children and they do a subject and they find that they're not good at it mm. or they feel they can't grasp something and you see them struggling. Let's take maths as that's always a subject that can get under a lot of people's skin. Mm. What would you do if you see that their confidence is low in a certain area and it's reflected by the school system, not by what you're doing at home. Mm. That's a whole podcast, that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I mean, I say right up the top, I think our school system needs the biggest overhaul Mm. because I think it caters to a small percentage of children and it does not cater to how all children learn and, and their true spirit and nature. You know, I think when we... When we step back from our kind of system at the moment and we look at how we are putting kids in, you know, classes with so many other kids and they're being made to sit at desks and or on computers and they're not being able to move their bodies or they're maybe not being able to learn in, with their hands or, you know, they're not, um, some kids learn best by talking about what they're learning to someone else. Like there's so many different ways that we learn and we often don't give our children the opportunity to do that. And so for those kids that perhaps are more 
tactile learners or need to learn moving, you know, their body, then yes, doing a test on maths, you know, is going to feel challenging for them because that's not their natural innate talent. You know, that's not how they process and learn best. And so that is really challenging in a system that really rewards that rote learning Mm. and measures from a system that's really, really outdated. And that can be really tricky with kids' confidence. There is no doubt. And I always come back to this and I've said this to my kids, you know, my three kids went to kind of mainstream schools. They didn't love it, you know, I, and they always say to me, why did you build the school now? Like when we yes. don't need it, right? Um, and and I kept coming back to this going, school is one part of a bigger picture of who you are as a human. And it does cater to this piece of a puzzle mm-hmm. and you sit in this piece of the puzzle. So what I'm going to do is remind you of your magnificence there. You know, so my son, he has always been an athlete. He he moves his body. That's how he is in the world. So school was torturous for him. The only time he enjoyed it was recess and lunch because he could go outside mm-hmm. and kick a soccer ball. And so it was very, very hard for him. And of course, because he found it so hard, then, you know, he would get bored and then they label him as somebody who's difficult or, you know, he's acting out when really he was just in the wrong environment. And that is a lot of children these days, unfortunately. And what we do is we often label those kiddos when really they don't need a label, they just need a different environment. And when we come back to education or just you know, children in general, children are always responding to their environment. Mm. They're always going, is it safe to be me here? You know, do I feel controlled? Is there any choice and autonomy that I have in this moment? You know, what is it that I'm actually needing and feeling in my body? And I think we don't cater to that at all. And so, you know, for any parent who has a child who's struggling with our kind of mainstream learning, I invite you to just love on them so hard around where their magic sits and mm. tells them tell them that this is just one small part of a bigger picture. Yeah. And and advocate for change because I think it will only change when enough parents go, this is not okay. This yes. is not enough. You know, I never set out to build a school, right? I was I don't even like education. <laughs> like I was really I had my own stories and traumas from education. You know, I never loved it. But the opportunity came up to do it with this other woman who was like, why don't we build a school that's based on all the things that you've taught me and all the stuff that I knew about trauma or about creating emotionally safe environments. And and I realised that it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass, not because I love education, but I thought we could create something here that could be an example of how kids can thrive, mm. where there are many ways for them to learn, where they have choice and autonomy, where we welcome feelings in the classroom, where we are teaching these kids about emotional intelligence, where we give them so much time to move their bodies and be in nature and connect into themselves and where we foster the magic of who they are. Like mm. here's an opportunity to do this. And, and you know, that's kind of what we've worked to create there, which I, you know, see we're three years in now and I see the results of, of what we see, not even academically, because they're doing brilliantly academically, because children learn best when they feel safe, right? And when they have choice and autonomy, but also just seeing these children thrive and grow in their own uniqueness mm. is actually what we want. You know, the education system was set up to kind of create workers. Yes. It was set up to be like, right, this industrial age, let Let's create workers so everybody just does what they're told. But our world isn't like that anymore. Mm. We need creative thinkers. We need people who are critical thinkers. We need kids that are deeply connected to themselves and the planet, you know, to take care of it. That's what we need to foster and teach. Absolutely. A school sounds divine. I'd love to talk about something that you mentioned that you speak a lot about, which is sex education. And, you know, for myself, I have a son who is 10 who is 
people always hear me talk about him, the most innocent, angelic, sweet child you'll ever meet. I don't really know if he knows what sex is. I haven't mentioned anything to him. I think some of his friends know. So if anything, he may have heard little things here and there. Like, you know how they all come home and they're like, I know what the the number 69 really means. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know if they 100% know what that means. But I'd love to get your advice on when do you say something... Yeah. Like, is there yeah. a right time or, you know, Such they know stranger question. danger. They know yeah. private parts. I've yeah. taught them that since they were young. Yeah. yeah. But yes. Yeah. How, how do I move forward? So just to reassure you, so <laughs> all kids are different. Yeah. Some kids come out super curious. They're going to like, what, why? And what about this? And what about that? And I want to know. Other kids are just oblivious to that there's anything called sex, right? Yes. And so the beautiful thing about sex education is it's not just one conversation. It's many conversations over many, many years. And we have age-appropriate conversations with our kids. Mm. So really up until the age of five, you know, it really is about all those beautiful things you're talking about, private parts, about nobody's allowed to touch and ask your body. We talk about, um, you know, autonomy over our bodies. Uh, we talk about those kind of early warning signs mm. that we can feel when something doesn't feel good. You know, that's part of kind of beautiful setting up stories around consent. For really children under the age of, you know, 10, 11, 12, and again, depends on each child, when we talk about It is not um, the way that we think about sex. It is often just biology. Mm. So really for children... You know, you can have a conversation with an eight-year-old about sex and just talk about there's a sperm and an egg and and this is what happens and this is how a baby's made and those kind of things. And they'll be like, oh, yeah. And they kind of take it on much the same as you go, well, why do we poo? Well, we eat food and then we digest it and it comes out. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of just biology. And then you could talk to that same child at 12 and go, hey, let's revisit sex again. But this time they're like, oh, hang on, there's something else here, right? And it's more about pleasure and what is an orgasm and those kind of things. So I did Really what we want to be doing is having many conversations over time. So your beautiful son in his gorgeous innocence, you could say there's, and one of the things I love to recommend to parents is get some books. There are so many brilliant books out there that'll actually do the work for you, right? So you can go and buy a whole lot of these great books uh, and you sit down with your kids and read these books and they do a beautiful job of just kind of, you know, laying it out from a really simple factual point of view. And then you can say, do you have any questions? They might be like, no. Now your son at 10 might be just like, oh yeah, that's it. And it's a nothing. It it hasn't, nothing has, you know, if he's just in his beautiful, gorgeous world, nothing's going to change. He's just learned about how humans work, you know, and what Mm. bodies are, right? And then again, you might revisit it when he's 12, 13, you know, we have other conversations then. And so we're just kind of building on a um, a knowledge base for kids in an age-appropriate way. And so, you know, that is a question often parents used to say to me, you know, but my child just is not even interested or innocent. And I'm like, and that's totally fine. But at 10, as he's starting to perhaps, you know, puberty and moving into these tween years, it's really wonderful to start talking about, hey, this is what bodies do and bodies begin to change and we have these amazing hormones and, and what's going to happen at maybe in two years, maybe in five years, you know, you'll start to grow hair in other places and and we can just normalise these conversations. It doesn't have to be a awkward, uncomfortable talk, which many of us, you know, had or didn't even have that at all. Yeah. We just read Dolly Doctor. I remember I, I remember being given the book 
Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret <laughs> by Judy Bloom. And, oh, I um, love that author. Yeah. And then um, there was the sealed section in Dolly Doctor. Yes, yes. It was like me and my friends used to pour over it, right? And we had no information. And I think that was why I really love teaching sex education to teens is because it was like, this is all the information I wanted to know. Mm. When I was 14 and 15 and I was like, but what about this and what about that? Because you know, what happens and particularly in our day and age now, because we have pornography, when kids are curious, they're just going to jump online mm. and then what they're going to find is really not the answers that you're wanting them to hear, right? Because pornography is not an accurate representation of sex. So we actually need to be a, um, a bigger influence than what pornography is, right? And that comes from being able to have safe conversations with our kids around this and just, and, and just taking the charge out of it. And that's where books can be a really great starting place where you can um, just chat about what happens with bodies, you know, this is what happens, this is how a baby's made. And really, again, until kids often start making sex hormones, it's just a, oh yeah, that's just what happens to bodies. Yes. That's what we do. And I think, I guess, why it's important is because um, information is really powerful for mm. children. So, and again, if he's at school and he's coming home and he's saying things, then there's chatter going on, right? And there's always kids that are going to have older siblings or are going to be yeah, exposed to stuff. Yeah, totally. And really, unfortunately, the average age of exposure to porn is around about 10 years of age, which is terrifying, right? And it's not because they're going looking for it either. It's sometimes they stumble across it. So easy. There's ads everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where, again, we need to have conversations around, you know, there's this thing called sex and sometimes on the internet there's naked people having sex and it's not for children to look at. And if you ever see that, I want you to come and tell me you're never going to get in trouble. And one of the key reasons why kids never tell their parents they've seen it is because then they're worried that they won't be able to use the iPad or go on the computer again. So you want to say, hey, you can come and tell me and you'll still be able to use the iPad and it's my job to kind of keep you safe. It's not stuff for children to look at. And if you did see it, then we can talk talk about it. And, you know, there's no embarrassment, there's no shame, you know, but those images can sometimes feel confusing and scary. Mm. So we want to be an askable parent. We want to be the parent that, um, that we can open up these conversations so it feels safe for our kids to come and talk to us about it. That's really profound what you're saying, because I remember when I interviewed Todd Sampson and he'd done this series on pornography and things like that. And also there are a lot of these apps these days, and one was a Meggle, where they were finding a lot of pedophiles go on, those sort of things. So these kids were looking, let's everyone connect. And they'd go into these chat rooms and it'd be men just Mm. doing horrendous things. I then put the blocks, you know, you can put them on all the social media devices so that mainstream porn sites don't come up. But I'm sure there's other things that get through. But my kids haven't said anything. But I do know that I've heard of schools where it does circulate at an age that isn't so old. Mm. So like you said, it will probably come about sooner rather than later. So to have a conversation with your child using the language that you just spoke about is so unbelievably important. And you're so right. I think half the time, because, you know, for my kids, as many are, they're obsessed with the iPad. I mean, I can't talk. I'm very much linked to my phone, but it's the fear of not being able to get that. And so knowing that they still can is a big deal. And I think not just with something like pornography, we want to be the safest place for our kids to come. Yes. And that 
And that kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier about making it safe for them to feel their feelings, making Mm. it safe for them to cry, to get angry, not shutting them down, not punishing them when stuff like that happens. Because when we do that, often then a story is set up with a child of, well, there's no point me coming to you and saying stuff because I'm just going to get in trouble. You're going to take something Mm. away from me. We want to create safe spaces for our kids to know, hey, there's nothing that you can do that's too big right? That means I'm not going to love you. Now there's stuff we learn and we're definitely going to have boundaries and, and, you know, sometimes we're going to need to repair for stuff we've done, but we want to be the safest place for them to come. And that often is where we need to kind of lean into ourselves and go, am I doing that? You know, I, when I do talks for parents, I usually ask them three questions, you know, do your, if you were to say to your child, is it okay to make a mistake? Is it okay to, um, to get angry and are you the safe place to come? Now, a lot of parents are like, yeah, I I think my child would say yes to all those questions. But a lot of the time how we respond to our kids and also how we behave tells a different story. Mm. So we really want to come back again to checking ourselves. Do I make it safe enough for my kids to bring me their big stuff? Mm. You know, do I shut it down? Do I feel uncomfortable with it? Do I yell? And we're all human, right? There's no perfect. And I, I know that most of us are parenting, all of us are parenting with our own trauma as well. So, you know, that turns up. But when we're looking at, okay, how do we keep our kids safe? How do we help them navigate this tricky stuff? Well, then we've got to really tune into making sure that we're making it safe enough for them to bring those big stories to us. I want to go back to talking about bodies changing and developing because I think that's a big one and I know for myself I'll never forget I got my period when I was 11 so I think at the time that was quite early but now it's girls are getting their period earlier and earlier which is another conversation about Mm. hormones and the things that we're ingesting and all that but anyway from my time I got my Mm. period early and I was so embarrassed I'll never forget and I went to an all-girls school but for some reason I don't think anyone was developing Mm. I think there was one girl that developed as fast as I did I'll never forget bless my mum so you know you get the boobs you've got the period and she would lay out my clothes every morning even though I was 11 that was still pretty nice of her anyway she like put a bra like I think I obviously went to get fitted for a bra she put that out I was mortified so every morning I would hide the bra under the bed And I cried my eyes out when I got my period because I just didn't want to be different. Yeah, yeah. And so I wonder what is the best way to talk to our children, especially if they're going through puberty a little bit earlier than some of their friends are? Yeah. It's, again, I think it depends on your child. And, it, and you know, I have so much compassion for younger Sarah. I'm feeling that. I'm going, I know that feeling. It's so big, isn't it? Especially if you're the first, you know. Yes. But this also can be angst for kids that, you know, others are developing and they're not. You know, that can feel big as well. I mean, I just look back at puberty and think it is one of the most full-on times mm. as our life as a human. And one of the tips I often give parents all the time, if they've got tweens or teens, is find the most awkward photo of yourself as a teenager and stick it on the fridge <laughs> so that you can look at it and go, I remember how hideous that face was, right? Like I've got a picture yeah, of me with I've a got perm. A, I've got many yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got this picture of me with a perm. It's like soft focus. It's so bad. It's so 80s. Anyway, I used to have that on my screensaver all the time when my kids were going through those teen years because I really needed to remind myself how full on it often feels, mm. you know, how alone you feel how you just want to belong, all those kind of things. So I think firstly, if we can remember and have a lot of compassion for what they're going through, that makes a huge difference. I think about how we 
we ha- navigate that with our kids comes back to, again, just creating safety for them to feel how they feel about it. So in an ideal world, you know, if we were to go back to, you know, little Sarah who was trying to hide that bra and, <laughs> and feeling, you know, all those feelings around getting a period, like, is there something that you needed that you didn't get at that time? Like, what would you have wanted from your mum at that moment? It makes me laugh now that I hid my bra under the bed. And I remember a lot of girls came in year seven and they all had seemed to have gone through puberty. So I felt that I was like amongst people, but I think I probably would have just wanted to feel like everyone's going to go through this and it's absolutely okay. And there's nothing to be ashamed of because I suppose the emotion that I felt at that time, if I'm reflecting on it, is I was ashamed because I didn't know anyone else that had felt that. And as we all know, if you do any of those tests, being ashamed of something is the lowest vibration you can feel. It's lower than anger, I think I remember hearing. And the reason I was asking you that around how your mum was is if we have a child that's navigating that, again, what they need is a safe place to feel the shame, feel the embarrassment, feel, I wish this wasn't happening, this isn't fair. And again, in those situations, we want to jump in with, oh, but darling, you know, everyone's going to go through it and it's okay. Actually just sit with, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? it, sweetheart. Mm. And I'm here and I'm just going to wrap you up in a bubble and I'm just going to love on you. And I'm just going to be here while you feel these hard bits. And sometimes that's all we can do when our kids are sitting in that deeper, darker stuff, right? Mm. All we can do is just be there to say, I love you and I trust you'll be able to move through it. Now, then there's also practical things we can do. We can get lots of books. We can, there's Mm. different beautiful resources out there. I mean, there's so many amazing resources out there now for tweens and teens and, and all that stuff that we could, you know, watch stuff together, show things that kind of that kind of thing but for me I guess I come back again to those feelings that you felt which were painful and horrible you know we can't take them away right Mm -hmm. we can't fix them for you as much as we want you just have to move through them and what makes it easier to move through stuff like that is having someone beside us who loves us who just says this feels really really tricky I know it does sweetheart and and you will find your way through it because Mm -hmm. again at 11 the devastation you feel at 16 you're like oh everyone's the same now and you know it's it's not there right but it's just one of those phases and there's going to be so many phases through those teenage years where our kids are going to feel that like you know everyone else kissed a boy and I haven't or I've got braces and nobody else does or you know I'm just like all I mean all just bring all the most awkward stuff you can to the surface and and there we have it. It's so funny when you say about the picture because my children have seen many a picture at my parents house of me and those I'm like mom why do you still have those pictures out (laughs) and they're like mom you are so ugly. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yes, and yes. like you said, let's have a look at the when you get a little bit older, yeah. what you look like. Mm. But I want to have a talk about drugs and alcohol because that is obviously a big thing that all parents are going to face, especially with a legal drug like alcohol. Yes, it's illegal to your 18 in Australia, but I still want to know how parents navigate that, especially, say, for example, if children are going to parties and they're older, we're talking about kids that are at school, but they might be 15 or 16 or something, and their friends' parents allow them to have alcohol. Because I I think one of the hardest things, and this is going even not just to do with substances, is if you parent in a certain way and then you see your child's friend's parents parent in a different way. And so you may come off as the strict. Like my daughter said to me yesterday, and she's only eight, you're so strict. And I'm thinking, I am the most lenient person going. Like the fact that you're calling me strict is bizarre, but it was interesting to hear that. 
So I wonder, you know, with alcohol and just generally what kind of advice you have. It's Look, it's really, really tricky because, again, the, the tricky part of teenagers is that, um, and this is how it's meant to be, we're not meant to be in their business all the time. They are going to go places where we're not sure where they are. They're going to go to friends' houses and be exposed to things. And that can feel very terrifying, right, because we're just like, I don't want them to be part of that stuff. And I come back again to how do we build the trust in the relationship with our kids, right? So that, you know, when I'm looking at a situation like that, if, you know, you've had conversations with your kids and saying, you know, we don't want you to drink until you're older, right? Which is fair enough. This is the impact on your brain and this is your body and all those kind of things. Kids are still going to take risks. They're still going to do age appropriate risk taking behaviour, mm. which, you know, and some won't and others will and some will do it more. And I always come back to this going, okay, well, again, how do we make it safe enough for our kids to talk about it with us? And how how do we have conversations where it's not us telling them, don't you dare do this and that's not okay and I'll be so disappointed if you do it. Let's sit down and go, okay, do you know the impacts of alcohol? Do you know the impacts of vaping? You know, why do you reckon people do it? Why do you reckon people are taking drugs, you know, when they're 15? What do you think? Like, let's have conversations around it so that Firstly, we are giving them the right information. And secondly, we're not making it something they can't come and talk to us about. Because kids are all going to be exposed to stuff, right, mm. at, at different ages and in different places. And what we want them to do is, again, be able to tune into themselves and go, is this right for me? right? So here's an opportunity where someone's like, do you want to drink or do you want to smoke or do you want to those things? Do they have enough connection to themselves to go, mm, this doesn't feel okay for me? Or, you know, yep, maybe I have a little bit, but not. Or also what we ideally want is if it does get out of hand, that our kids go, you know what, let's ring my parents because, you know, they'll come and help us here. You know, they're mm. not going to judge it. That's what we want. We want it to be safe enough for them to bring whatever stuff's going on because we can't we can't control it, right? I mean, we can give them all information and, you know, I don't definitely don't advocate buying your kids alcohol or drugs or anything like that, right? Kids are very clever. I think about what we used to do when we were younger oh trying to find yeah. stuff. I mean, God, it's just, you know, I mean, it's a lot easier for them these days too. But again, I come back to going, how do we stay connected enough to them so that they can pause for a second? They maybe have a moment of just, you know, discernment. Is this a yes for me? Should I be doing this? Um, sometimes that decision isn't going to go the way we want it to. And again, how do we how do we work with that? You know, it's an ongoing conversation. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule around it because, you know, you tell a child, no, particularly teenager, you can't do that. Well, then they go to their friends and go, well, mum and dad aren't here so I'll give yeah. a crack and see what happens. Again, we want them to come back to a place where they're tuning into themselves to go, actually, that doesn't feel like a good decision or I don't I don't think that's okay. Mm. And, you know, I used to, we've said to all of our, my three kids over the years, we're like, if you're at a party, something's gone down, someone's not okay, someone's taken too much stuff, always call us. We will always come. We were all about safety, making sure everybody's safe, right? And so that's happened in the past. There's been times where our kids have called us and gone, hey, someone's not okay here and I'm really worried about them. Could you come? You know, or do you think I should ring an ambulance or, you know, and I'll be like, right, what's going on? And they've known that we will come and be there to support them if they need to. And, you know, like I think every parent of a teen sits there and goes, I don't want my kids to drink. I don't want them to smoke. I don't want them to do any of those things. We know it's not good for them, right? And, and and yet sometimes they still will, yeah. you know, and again, and we did, of course we did because, you know, we're all trying to figure out who we are and we're, we're all about expanding and taking risks and all those kind of things. But what I have learned over the years in my work is that 
the more connected kids feel to their family of origin or the more accepted they feel, the less they often feel the need to do those really crazy risk-taking yes. behaviours. So a lot of often what happens in adolescence is if kids have got a massive backpack of feelings, if there's a lot of hurt there, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of repressed anger, all that kind of stuff, well, then when they move into those teenage years, those feelings come bubbling up mm. and now they're looking for greater things to numb them right? And that looks like smoking weed or drinking or risky sexual behavior or pornography or gaming and all those kind of things. They're looking for that numbing repression mechanism to use in situations like that because there's a whole lot of feelings there. Mm. And particularly for kids that have had big trauma or feel disconnected from their parents or, you know, just are not feeling seen and loved. Well, they are going to tend to want to numb out a lot more than other kids, right? So a lot of teens will maybe try something, but they're not doing it to go, I just need to completely numb and get off my face so I can cope, right? That's when we see it's a massive issue. So kids trying stuff is pretty standard on some level of, you know, that kind of rites of passage and we want them to kind of tune in, is, is this feel okay for me? But I have found that kids that have got a lot of trauma or are not feeling seen, they're the ones that will often push it harder. Mm, that's so interesting. I wonder for you, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Mm. I would say, uh, I'm going to go back to all those years ago when I trained to become a doula, which was all about kind of holding space for people. And my beautiful teacher at the time, Ria, um, she used to say to listen with gentle ears. And I loved that because it really, and I've held that with me for like 20 years now of to always listen with compassion because mm. everybody's got a story. And if we could see everybody's, if everybody's story was just standing behind them and you could look around the corner and see that, you would only listen with compassion mm. because you'd be like, oh, I totally get why you are the way you are or why you're controlling or why you are really anxious because I can see what's happened to you. And we don't see everybody's stories, but we know that everybody does have a story. And so that piece of advice of listen with gentle ears is something that I have held with me for a really, really long time because I feel... I, I try every day to listen with deep compassion to people mm. and not come from a place of judgment, but only come from a place of we are all doing the best job that we know how. Mm. You know, we are all coming from protection, every single one of us. We're all just trying to keep ourselves safe. And so if we can turn up and listen with gentle ears, then we are inviting connection we are inviting empathy and we're inviting someone else to be seen. Mm. I, I had the most beautiful experience a few days ago. I was flying to Perth and, you know, it was a packed flight and there was this woman sitting next to me and when we sat down, she was like, I could feel like the tension buzzing off her body and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, and I said to her, are you okay? And she's like, oh, I'm not a very good flyer at all. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary, isn't it? You know, what is it that worries you? And so I'm just listening to her tell her story and then she's starting to get really really tense as we're about to take off. And I said to her, would it help if you held my hand? Aww. And she said, oh my God, yes. And so I just held out my hand and she held my hand and I put my other hand on top of hers. And I said, why don't you tell me about 
your life. Like, who are you? And she starts talking about her kids and she starts talking about her grandkids. And for half an hour, we sat there and held hands and she just told me about her life. And then she was like, oh God, I feel so much better. And, you know, and then, you know, then we let go of hands. That was weird, but, (laughs) and then (laughs) we just did our own thing. (laughs) But I remember in that moment thinking that was a tiny act of kindness and compassion for someone who felt scared and I just listened to her and she ended up telling me all about traumas she'd had and all sorts of stuff. And by the end of the flight, when we were landing, I said, do you want to hold my hand again? She goes, yeah, okay. And then <laughs> so we did again. And then and then I said to her, what's your name? And she told me her name and I told her my name. And I was like, and then, then we got off the plane and, yeah. you know, and I was like, it was a really beautiful interaction with a stranger. Yes. And and that doesn't take much, you know, to meet people. And I know that everybody's capable of doing that because we've all got our own stuff. But I think that coming back to that empathy and compassion, if we can mm. lead with that, then then you never know who you're going to touch in those Absolutely. What is something that you wish for yourself? Oh, these are good questions. Hmm. I think at this stage in my life, you know, as my kids have grown up and I'm doing work that I love in the world, um, I feel one of the, and, and you know, I've been with my husband for nearly 25 years. I feel like I'm one of the very blessed humans to have known love deeply, Mm. Um, not only with my husband, but with my kids and the work I do. And so I think I'm at this stage of my life with what I wish for myself now is even more joy and fun. Mm. I think I've worked really hard for a long time and been in that servitude of mothering and so much of that is giving. and, And now my kiddos don't really need me as much anymore. I think... I'm reaching this point where I'm like, ah, oh, I want to, I want to have more laughter and joy now because you know that's what life is meant to be about. Mm. You know, the other stuff is there, and and I can do that easily. But for me now, I'm I'm thinking it's about playing more. Mm. Do you have a favourite saying or prayer or mantra? Yeah, I do. I have two actually, which have really guided I think a lot of what I've done in the world. One is and I did this for quite a while when I was really figuring out what I wanted to do is I would wake up in the morning and I'd put my hand on my heart and I would say, show me where you need me mm. to the world. I'd just be like, where can I be of service? Like, what what am I here to do? And before I actually built the school, I remember being at real crossroads in my life, just doing what am I meant to be here for? And, and I did that mantra every morning of just show me where you need me. And then sure enough, the school turned up and I remember thinking, this is where I'm meant to be, to mm-hmm. create something new. But the other one that I... Um, that I use often is the saying, or not even saying, just a sentence, remember who you are, Mm. which is that coming home to yourself, you know, the enoughness, which we all have, Mm. which we were born with, which we then, you know, get knocked out of us and we forget. And I think, and we spend most of our adulthood coming back to remembering who we are and our enoughness. And, And I still remind myself of that whenever I get scared, whenever I have to do something courageous or whenever things feel a bit hard, I always come back to that baseline again of remember who you are, Mm. you know, that, and remember who we all are. We're all born enough, you know, and that life has often just told us something different. What's been your most memorable mystical experience? I was very lucky to grow up with a really um, spiritual mother. So way before spirituality was cool, (laughs) my mum had crystals all over her house and all sorts of strange stuff as a kid. So I kind of grew up in quite a spiritual environment. So I was exposed to lots of weird, weird, crazy stuff. But um, 
I think probably the most extraordinary mystical experience was about a year and a half ago. Um, I I don't even know how it happened. I, I had this massage one day and I came out of the massage and I remember thinking, wow, I feel really blown out. You know, when you come out yes, sometimes and you're like, out of body kind of thing. Yeah. And so I remember having to sit in my car for half an hour before I could drive home. Like I just didn't even feel like I could drive. And um, I managed to drive home and I got home and, I, and my husband was looking at me like, are you all right? And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And I went and laid on my bed and the feeling I had was that I was just connected to everything. Mm. And I remember thinking, either I'm having a stroke or <laughs> or some life-changing things happening. And I actually rang my mum and I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I it was like I felt like my energy field was as big as Australia. Yes. I felt completely expanded. And the thing that was the most extraordinary feeling of all that is that I felt like I had no fear. No fear. Mm. I remember just thinking everything is exactly where it needs to be. And I felt nothing but complete joy. I was literally mm. laying there looking out the window with the biggest smile on my face. And my husband's like, have you taken drugs? And I'm like, no. And I remember I had to do a presentation online in about two hours. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this because I felt so joyous and expanded. I felt like I'm going to get online and all I'm going to do is smile at people. <laughs> and then I'm going to be like, this is the answer. And they'll be like, and somehow I managed to get through the presentation. But even afterwards, I still just felt this most ecstatic sense of oneness, bliss. I mean, I've read other people that have had experiences like this and it's really hard to even quantify and put into words, but it was, and it, and it lasted for about 48 hours. Wow. I just felt in this extraordinary and I could do nothing but smile. And I remember the next day I had to cancel all my clients because I thought I usually sit there and listen to people's trauma and I can't get on there and just smile at them because I was like, I just I just couldn't. And I just thought I'm just going to feel this while I feel while I can. And um, it was extraordinary. Wow. And I still find it hard to talk about or make sense of because it I can't understand. Well, things like that you can't actually really rationalise. It just was one of the most extraordinary feelings I've had, and it. And it made me just realise, I think, the connectedness of it all. And, and I get that people search for that feeling often and some people find it through meditation or breath work and some people find that through drugs and that kind of stuff. But it was probably one of the most extraordinary 48 hours of my life that I had. And even as I talk about it now, I can feel the essence of what it was. Mm. And it slowly started to fade and I was like, no, come back. I just, I just wanted to sit in that space forever. I was just like, this is actually what we're maybe meant to feel like. And, um, and I don't even know how it really came about. It's just one of those things. And then it just kind of left and I was like, wow, that was extraordinary. And Maybe part of me is thinking I've been trying to chase that mm. <laughs> ever since. It was pretty. It was really. It was really powerful. And I've I've met one or two people I've spoken to who've had a similar experience who really explained it in the same way um, of just the most extraordinary mystical expansion bliss. Yeah, it's funny you say that because. I ask this question to a lot of people and over the four years I've done this podcast, I've had that answer on numerous occasions by wow. yogis to yeah, right. everyday people that has come up and they don't. And one guy was playing golf and he said that I think it's just you're so in tune at that moment that the realm between this one, that veil is lifted 
And at that moment, you see that oneness. And even I, I remember when I interviewed a near-death survivor, Anita Muljani, and she talked about... I've read when her she, book. Yeah, yeah. When she went over to the other side and it was that overwhelming feeling of just oneness and connectedness and, and bliss and happiness. And when we come into Earth, it's the duality and all that. But I think that's kind of what we're all seeking in a sense, or most of us wouldn't even realise, but that is that nirvana or whatever it is. So I think that's incredible for you. You must have just been absolutely connected. Yeah. And I look back on it and think um, for a while there afterwards, I was like, why am I not trying to get back to that? Like I was really like searching and I kept meditating or I kept doing stuff to go, I want that feeling back again. But I look at it now and think it was a beautiful reminder of how easily we can swing into our drama and our Mm. fear and our trauma And experiencing that, I think, made me realise just that that is the truth of who we are, which is that saying, remember who you are. Mm. Like that for me is that. And and I feel very blessed to have experienced that. And I hope that I get to experience that again. I hope others get to experience what that feels like. And that's that's actually really comforting you saying that, that you've spoken to others that have said similar, because I kept thinking for a while, what is going on here? And... um, and yeah, I feel like I'm going to always hold that part as a part of me of the truth of who we are. Mm, so forward. special. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me, I think, is all about connection. Connection to yourself, connection to those that you love, connection to this beautiful planet that we live on. I think you know, greatness, I'm sure many of other, many people have said this, it's not about things and it's mm. not about how we look. It's about that deep, beautiful connection of love and intimacy and acceptance for ourselves and for others. And, you know, the older I've become, the more I just keep moving into that it's all about that deep, loving, kind connection to self. When we can speak words of compassion to ourselves, then it's easier to speak words of compassion to others. And for me, a life of greatness is always speaking through that lens, I think, to myself and to others and feeling in that place of enoughness. Thank you so much for all your pearls of wisdom today, which there have been many. I'm so grateful for the conversation. Mm, Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.